Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us and our time to look into your word together. Please bless this fellowship. Help us to grow not only in our knowledge and in our brains, but that we would grow uh, in our hearts, that we would be drawn closer to you and that we would just understand more about the gospel in a way that changes how we live. Help us to love and serve you well today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, page 20 is where we left off last week, the bottom of page 20 in particular. What were we talking about last week? Yes, before that we talked about propitiation. Now that's a funny word, isn't it? But what is the propitiation of Christ? It's a New Testament word, it's in your Bible. The atonement, yeah, you could say that, the atoning sacrifice of Christ where he died in our place for our sins, and he was enduring what in his death? What was Jesus enduring? Whose wrath? God's wrath, okay. And he was a substitute for us. He wasn't dying for any of his own sins. He was dying in our place for our sins. We looked at Romans 3, Romans 5, Hebrews 9, 1 Peter 2. Then we talked about the resurrection. And the resurrection, of course, followed the atoning death by three days. And what did the resurrection validate? The first note there under resurrection at the bottom of page 20, what did the resurrection validate? The teachings of Christ, the works of Christ, the death itself. Yes, in the gospel. I mean, how, what, what good would his atoning death be if he was still dead? Right? There, there wouldn't be much there that would give us hope, would there? But we have the comfort of knowing that he rose from the dead. Now let me see if I can catch us up now that this is working. <clears throat> Propitiation and resurrection. Okay, there we go. That's where we were. The resurrection of Christ validates all of these things, his teachings, his works, his death, the gospel, and even Scripture itself, because Scripture did prophesy that he would rise from the dead. We looked at three passages last week, Job 19, Psalm 16, and Isaiah 53. They're at the bottom of page 20. We checked out each of those three passages and uh, saw how they were used in the New Testament, not Job 19 or Isaiah 53, but Psalm 16 in particular, how Peter used this text in reference to Christ in Acts chapter 2, 29 to 36, okay? So we're in the middle of this conversation about the resurrection, and today let's go ahead and turn the page and start at the top of page 21 as we continue this conversation. All four Gospels conclude with the resurrection of Christ, okay? This is uh, significant because uh, not all the time do you see all four Gospels speaking of the same event. There are actually, I think, only two other events that all four Gospels reference. Can you guess or do you know what they are? Besides the resurrection, there might be three or four, but I know for sure of two events that all four Gospels reference. It's not Jesus walking on water. It's not turning water into wine. His death, very good. Yeah, all four Gospels mention his death. And then there's one miracle that's mentioned in all four. Only one. Joanna. Almost. How many? 
at a zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. So these are pretty important events when you have all four Gospels mentioning them. And of course, the resurrection is absolutely critical. Okay. And the apostles preaching, as we go on from the Gospels, when we look at the book of Acts, the apostles preaching emphasized the resurrection. They didn't leave people hanging, wondering what happened to Jesus after he died, but their preaching emphasized that he rose from the dead. And Paul taught that the resurrection was even central to our justification. What is justification? We haven't gotten there in our study yet to define that, but what is justification? Do you know? Hey, yeah, we're being declared what? Righteous and innocent, okay? Yeah, because we stand, in our natural state, we stand before God as guilty, don't we? Do we have any standing in and of ourselves before God to say, let me into heaven? No, we don't. But if you are a believer in the finished work of Christ, you are justified, you are declared innocent. And let's look at this in Romans chapter 4. It's the very last verse of Romans 4, where Paul actually ties the resurrection of Christ to justification. It's not just that Jesus died that we would be justified, but He rose again that we would be justified. Um, Let's start in verse... 23, or 24, Romans 4, 24, it says, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So the resurrection of Christ is so central to his work that we can say that our standing before God absolutely, totally depends on if Jesus rose from the dead or not. So this is not one of those doctrines that we can say, well, you know, there are a bunch of different views whether he rose from the dead or not. You know, some say that people just came by and stole the body. That may have happened. And we just never found it. Some say it was a spiritual resurrection that he basically just turned into a ghost. No, just that, that it could be. We can't accept any of those other views, can we? Your standing before God depends on whether or not Jesus' body is in heaven or still somewhere in the earth. If, you, if his body is still somewhere in the earth, you have no justification. You have no innocence before God. And you can think of it this way. Uh, some have said on the cross, it's like Jesus wrote the check. But through the resurrection, he, he cashed it, right? The, the check was proven to be good and valid. The check didn't bounce. Aubrey, does that illustration make sense to you? Okay, all right. <laughs> we'll have one of these white-haired people explain it to you later, okay? <clears throat> so, the resurrection validates his death and is central to our justification, Okay. The New Testament 
is the most well-preserved document of antiquity. That's always a fascinating study. You can look at all kinds of documents that we have through history. There is no document that has been more well-preserved than the New Testament from ancient times. And it is both accurate and consistent. And the disciples would have known if Jesus did not rise from the dead, but they, we mentioned this last week, what did they go on to do? Well, they all sacrificed much for his name. They were persecuted. They were killed for his name. And so these are two uh, evidences that you can point to when talking to somebody about the resurrection. Now, Scripture's enough. We, we talked about this last week, too. Why do we believe in the resurrection of Christ? Joe, what did you say? Because the Bible tells us so. That's right. That's a great answer. Uh, but in addition to that, we can add these realities, too. We have this document that's been well-preserved that attests to Jesus' resurrection, that 500 witnesses beheld him in his resurrected state. Uh, we have the lives of the disciples that are documented in history, and we can say, look, they went on to risk their own necks, quite literally, for this reality that Jesus rose from the dead. And who would die for a lie? I wouldn't. They knew it to be true. That's it. That's why they, could, they would say, take my life. I will not forsake my Savior. Right. Okay? And the resurrection was a physical bodily resurrection. You have this on your sheet. These are blanks at the top of 21. The resurrection was a physical bodily resurrection, not a mere spiritual resurrection. And he was risen never to die again. That sets him apart from all others, you think of the widow's son who was raised in Luke chapter 7, or Jesus' friend Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Those who came before him were resurrected to die again. Like, that, that would be cool, but also a real bummer, wouldn't it? <laughs> like, whoa, I'm alive again. That's amazing. What, I'm going to die again? <laughs> I, I got to go, I I go through death again? I have to taste death a second time? Yeah, yeah. That's the case. But Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And that's what we'll talk about next is his ascension. Jesus ascended on high with his body, took his body. There will be times perhaps you'll encounter some false teachers out there who will say, uh, in fact, I just uh, encountered one earlier this year, who will say that Jesus like shed his body before he ascended. Isn't that wild? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Isn't that weird? And Because they'll say, well, the Bible never tells us uh, what happened to Jesus' body. Okay, we'll examine that as we get going through here, okay? But, but let's focus on the resurrection before we get to the ascension. You see we have some passages here that I want us to look at uh, where we see what Jesus did in this state. So let's look at these passages together, starting in Matthew 28, the first book of the New Testament, last chapter of that book, Matthew 28, verse 9. After the resurrection, let's see what Jesus is doing here. Would someone read verses 8 through 10? Matthew 28, 8 through 10. Okay, Evelyn's going to read that for us. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Matthew 28, 8 to 10. Okay, 
Focus on verse 9. What do we see about the physicality of Jesus' resurrection in verse 9? Yeah, it wasn't like a hologram where you just like reach through, okay? But they actually took hold of his feet. These are real physical feet. And uh, the Bible tells us at the second coming of Christ, what's going to happen with those feet in Zechariah 14? Do you remember this one? Where are his feet going to be placed? On the Mount of Olives, and the mountain's going to split in two. Those real physical feet are going to come back with him in his second coming. Okay? Luke 24. Let's flip over to Luke. Two books over. Luke 24, verse 30. Again, post-resurrection here. And let's do uh, 28 through 30. Luke 24, 28 through 30. Rex. All right, so what are we seeing here in verse 30, Luke 24, 30, about the physical nature of Christ's resurrection body? Yeah, he's reclining at the table, okay, so that's actually happening. He's breaking the bread after blessing it and began giving it to them, okay? So you can figure he's having a meal there with them. Uh, verse 31, their eyes were opened, they recognized him, and then what does he do? Vanishes. Okay, now this is a little bit different. Here we've been emphasizing the physical nature, which it was a physical resurrection, but then there's something different too because he's able to just, boop, gone, vanished. Keep that in mind as we go through this. It would be a little creepy. Yeah, I would. <laughs> it would be uh, ultimately unusual. Yes, yes it would. Yes, which also happens. Yes, that's exactly right. Let's go to John now, the next gospel, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we'll look at 26. And this is what Rex was just talking about. Someone read that verse for us, John 20, 26. Go ahead. Okay, so what's unusual here? He didn't open the door. (laughs) (laughs) Doors were shut, and then there's Jesus in the midst of them. Can you do that with your physical body? (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk after the service today, Sarah. (laughs) He just appears. That is quite remarkable. So that is also unusual. We have vanishing in Luke 24, and then appearing here in John chapter 20. Joe. 
Yeah, right. You can emphasize here one side or the other, can't you? You can emphasize the um, unique nature of his physical body, where he's able to come and go. And you can say, so that must not have been really physical. Or you can emphasize the true humanity of the resurrected body and say, yeah, he must have shed it before he went up to heaven. It's just like any other body. Okay, we don't want to err on either side here. We want to hold both, right? That this is a true physical body, yet there's stuff he's able to do that we can't do because okay? he's in a glorified state. Yes. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to take hold of his feet. Okay. Or, yeah, like Thomas, good. That's here in John chapter 20 also. Well, let's go to Acts 1, 2 chapters over, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, another activity of Jesus in his resurrected state that we'll get to uh, in more depth here momentarily. Acts 1, 9, someone want to read that for us? Okay, so this is just simply the ascension of Christ. Uh, we actually have two accounts of this ascension, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But he left. Now, again, notice it doesn't say that his body dropped and they saw his spirit go. No, but he, as a whole person, left their sight. Now let's go to Acts chapter 10. Same book, just a few chapters over. Acts 10. We'll look at verse 41. Let's read actually 40 and 40. Acts 10, 40 and 41. Who can read that for us? Thank you. They were doing what with him after he rose from the dead? Eating and drinking. Now that's interesting. Eating and drinking. Hmm. Does the glorified body need to eat or drink? Keep philosophers busy for a while, right? As you think through that. He did. He, well, he did it, yeah. Whether he needed to or not, he did. Ate and drank. And so the body's able to eat and drink at that point. Yes. 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 That's right. In fact, um, and this is another passage I have on your handout here, John 21. You have Jesus, again, in the resurrected state, saying to his disciples, come and have breakfast. I mean, out of all the things that you would expect the resurrected Christ to say, you probably wouldn't expect him to say, hey, breakfast is ready. <laughs> right? Come, come eat breakfast. And it says, none of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Okay? So what did he do in this state? Well, he was touched, he ate, he drank, he cooked, cooked breakfast. He appeared, he disappeared, and he ascended. All of these things Jesus did in his resurrected state. 
which shows us, of course, that this was a physical bodily resurrection, just like his return will be a physical bodily return, but also that there's something different about this body in that he's never going to die again. He's not subject to decay. This body is not subject to that second law of thermodynamics. Um, This body is able to appear and disappear in closed rooms or out of closed rooms. So that's different, yet there's also true physicality here, okay? So that's what's going on in the resurrected state as it pertains to Christ. Any thoughts or questions on this? Before I move on to the next thing. Kraken? Okay. Jesus' post-resurrection glorified body was certainly physical, yet it also transcended matter. This physicality reflects the original design of God that man may not die, but continue on in a physical body in perfect harmony with God. If Jesus is not alive, he could not be the one to return and conquer, fulfilling numerous Old Testament prophecies. But he is alive, and he is going to return and conquer, fulfilling those very prophecies, okay? Well, let's talk about the ascension. Let's finish uh, this section within our big study, talking about the ascension of Christ. Jesus didn't die again after the resurrection. He's not roaming around on the earth somewhere like the Apostle John. That's what he's doing, right? How many of you were taught that? Just curious, growing up, were any of you taught the Apostle John is roaming the earth? Oh, good. Wow. Sorry to introduce you to a false doctrine you were never taught in the first place. Uh, But but yeah, the uh, Mormon church teaches that the Apostle John is still roaming around the earth, like the uh, three Nephites also still roaming around. (laughs) The Apostle John was Mexican. Yeah. Yeah. The one. Well, they get it from the very end of uh, John's gospel. Do you know the, the last thing that Jesus says in John's gospel? It's Jesus is uh, talking about the Apostle John, he's talking to Peter, and he says, what is it to you if, well, let me quote him directly. I don't want to misquote our Lord. He says, um, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, of course, Jesus was not declaring, I'm going to keep him alive for the next X thousand years until I come back. But uh, it's actually an interesting interaction that he's having with Peter there, and he gives him this interesting hypothetical. Well, uh, certain people, particularly the Mormon church, they take that verse and say, that means John is still alive today roaming the earth somewhere. Well, you have to, something to talk about next time you get into an evangelistic conversation with a Latter-day Saint. You can, you can just talk about that, okay? Okay, I'm not here to teach you that today. Okay, sorry. Got us distracted. <clears throat> but, uh, Jesus ascended to heaven where he came from. Okay? This is uh, John 3.13. Uh, this is a, a good verse. All verses are good, but this is helpful talking about the ascension. In John 3.13, Jesus himself is speaking here, and he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So if you're ever interacting with somebody who says Jesus was 
born into this world just like the rest of us. Or if you're talking to someone who says, actually, all of us were in heaven, and then we all came to earth. Well, Jesus actually addresses both of those views here in this verse when he says, no one has been in heaven before except for the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 3.13, good verse. There are two Old Testament texts that speak of the ascension of Christ. And uh, this is somewhat underappreciated, I think, in Christian circles. We often don't even mention the ascension of Christ, let alone study the prophetic word about the ascension. But I have them there on your sheet in the middle of page 21. Psalm 68, 18, and Psalm 110, 1. Both of these speak to the resurrection of Jesus. So let's go to these, starting with 68, 18. Psalm 68. Let's go um, 15 to 18. This is a cool section. Psalm 68, verses 15 to 18. Would someone like to read that for us? Okay. Right. Now, if you were just reading this passage in your daily Bible reading, your mind would not go, oh, this is ascension of Christ, right? Probably not. You wouldn't immediately think that. But if you have a Bible with cross-references, what cross New Testament cross-reference are you given? You guys know how to use the cross-references in your Bible? I hope so. Where does it send you in the New Testament? There should be a verse in Ephesians from verse 18. Good, good, good. So let's go there. Ephesians 4.8. Because you see this passage and you think, okay, ascension, really? Yes, in Ephesians, in the New Testament, chapter 4. We'll start at verse 7. And I'll read through, um, I guess I'll read through 10. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting at verse 7, it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's our verse. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, he, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Interesting parenthetical phrase there that follows. But in verse 8, we have a direct quotation from Psalm 68, where the apostle is applying that verse to Jesus' ascension. One thing you may notice, I know we're going through a lot of passages quickly here, but one thing that you may notice is that in verse 18 that Sarah read for us of Psalm 68, 
it says that he received gifts among men. And then here in Ephesians 4, it says he gave gifts to men. Now, Paul here is not changing the Old Testament scripture. Um, I don't know this for certain, but it's possible that he's quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. But the idea is the same in both passages. To receive gifts among men as someone who conquers means that you're receiving the spoil, you're receiving the bounty to distribute to those who are around you. You as the conqueror, the victor with the victory, you're receiving these gifts to distribute as the conquering king or the conquering prince. And so the same idea is here repeated in Ephesians 4.8 where it says that Jesus gave gifts to men. He received all things and he distributed to those who are his. And so Paul here is taking that verse under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and applying it to Jesus not only rising from the dead, but ascending to heaven, building his church, and equipping his church with gifts as he's the victor who has received all things. And we now share in all things with Christ. I think that's pretty cool imagery, if you ask me. So what do you guys think about that? Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4. Oh, it's clear, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yep. Yep, he's clearly applying it to the ascension. He clearly believes Jesus did ascend. Yeah. Anything else? On that particular verse? Well, if you can memorize that, you will do awesome at Bible trivia. If you can remember, Psalm 68, verse 18, ascension of Christ, because that one is a little bit hard to remember. But yeah, the way the apostles using it is that Christ ascended into heaven, built his church, or is building his church. And we'll talk more about that in the ecclesiology section of this big theology study that will start, uh, I don't know, in a few months, okay? All right, the other passage is Psalm 110.1. Do any of you know, speaking of Bible trivia, any of you know a fun fact about Psalm 110.1? I think we've mentioned it a couple times here lately. What's a fun fact about Psalm 110.1? Yeah, it is the Wi-Fi password at our church. Very good, Rex. Yes. Psalm 110.1 is, anybody know? The most, yeah, the most quoted or referenced verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So if you've ever wondered, I wonder what part of the Old Testament shows up in the New Testament the most, this is it. Psalm 110, the very first verse of that psalm. An amazing verse. Someone want to read that for us? Psalm 110.1? Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. Okay, yeah, that's good, just the first verse. The very first phrase of the very first verse should strike you as interesting. Yahweh says to, let me confirm, I believe it's Adonai. Yeah, Yahweh says to Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord. What's going on here? Do we believe that there are multiple gods and they 
chat with each other? They text and call and email? What's happening? Yeah, it, it surely seems as though we have the Father speaking to the Son. And when you see how it's used in the New Testament, that's clearly what comes through, okay? This verse that is the most referenced verse in the New Testament. So you could read this as, The Father says to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Amazing, amazing verse. Was that up there the whole time whenever I was asking you about the fun fact? You guys should have got that. It's on the screen. Oh, okay. I was giving you the answer. All right. Well, let's look at uh, Acts chapter 2 now and see how it's used by Peter in his sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. This is the same place where we just looked last week to see how Peter referenced Psalm 16, speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Now he's going to reference Psalm 110.1 to reference the ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 2, and I'll, I'll start at verse 30 actually. Acts 2, verse 30, where the apostle is here speaking of what happened to Jesus. And he's talking about David. He says, because David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne... He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. That's Psalm 16.10, the resurrection. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Psalm 110.1, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amazing sermon, isn't it? I mean, preaching with such boldness. This, this Peter who, you know, a few weeks before, a couple of months before, he was sitting there denying to a little girl that he knew Jesus. And here he is with a backbone standing in front of his fellow countrymen saying, you crucified the Lord of glory. The one whom our prophets sp- uh, spoke of that He would be resurrected and ascended into heaven at the right hand of God until all of his enemies were made an ottoman, a footstool for his feet. Amazing. Okay? Well, before we go uh, to Luke, any thoughts or questions on that? Doing okay? Okay, well, let's go there. Luke. Luke chapter 24, two more passages I want us to look at. I know we're flipping around a lot today, so thanks for hanging in there. But Luke chapter 24, starting at 44. What's very interesting about Luke is that he's the only gospel writer that includes the ascension in the gospel. I mentioned earlier that all four gospels reference the resurrection. Luke is the only one of the four who goes on to talk about the ascension. And he is also the one who wrote the book of Acts, isn't he? 
Yes, he is. And uh, that, that's like a, a part two to his gospel. You've got the gospel of Luke. That's part one. He talks about the ascension in Acts chapter 1 also. The only places where we get like the real-time narrative of the ascension of Christ are in the two books of the Bible that Luke wrote. And they're back-to-back chapters, the end of his gospel and the beginning of Acts. Pretty neat. So let's look at the end of his gospel, Luke 24, verses 44 to 53. Would someone read that? It's a little bit of a longer section, but Luke 24, 44 to 53. Who's got it? Brave volunteer. Thank you, Mandy. Right. So we have here in Luke's first installment, his gospel, a glimpse of Jesus's ascension. Okay, this is pretty, pretty quick. And actually, both accounts are relatively quick as Luke describes them. It's just like it happened. But uh, he says in verse 51, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. He lifted up physical hands, physical bodily resurrection. He gave the disciples a blessing while parting. Did you notice that? It says, verse 51, while he was blessing them, he parted. So it's like happening at the same time, the blessing and the parting. And he was being carried up into heaven. Like I mentioned, he's the only gospel writer to include Jesus' ascension at the end of the gospel. Not that the others denied it in any sense, but that Luke was the only one who, again, being led by the Spirit, saw fit to finish his gospel that way. Right? So uh, that's a pretty amazing account, and we get a little bit more detail in Acts 1. But any thoughts on this passage at the end of Luke? What an amazing final word from Jesus, huh? Like an amazing final sight for the disciples that he leaves them while blessing them. Like that had to give them such assurance. Yeah. Like, how would they walk away from that event if he, while rebuking them, parted them? Okay, well, he's not happy with us. I guess we better go figure it out. But he parted from them while blessing them. What a beautiful assurance he gave his disciples there. Okay, well, let's go to Acts. Again, this is also Luke. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. And we we talk about how when you have different accounts of an event, like the resurrection, for example, you will have different authors including different details. It's one of those things that 
non-believers will say about the Bible, like, oh, you can't trust what the Bible says because what Matthew says about the resurrection, the, it's, it's different than what John says about the resurrection as far as the events and how it all happened. It includes different details. And we say, well, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if four news stations reported on the same event, you would get four different news stories that were all hopefully factual in this case. With, <laughs> it depends on if MSNBC is there, right? Uh, but, no, you get these, these four uh, news reporters, and they're going to tell the story in their own way based on the facts that are in front of them. They'll differ a little bit story to story, but they're going to tell the same story. What's interesting with Luke he gives us the narrative of the ascension twice at the end of his gospel and at the book of Acts. And Luke, even the two times he tells it, tells it a little bit differently and includes different details both times. And it's not that he was schizophrenic or something and couldn't remember and just made stuff up on the fly. But apparently when he was telling it the second time, he felt it necessary to include different details than when he told it the first time. Okay. Yes. Yes. And that is, I think, the most obvious response that we could have to someone who makes such a claim is, you really think you would believe the Bible if all the Gospels were just totally uniform and said the exact same thing? <laughs> yes. Right. That's exactly right. Yes. I mean, this, this shows that um, even though they were inspired, they were also human authors, right? Being led in different ways by the Spirit to include different details because they had different audiences they were writing to. They were making different points for the purpose of their uh, Gospels. And yeah, if <laughs> you read the book of Matthew and then you flip to the book of Mark and it reads word for word exactly like the book of Matthew. Hmm, that would be a little suspicious, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it would. So, uh, even the same author here, Luke, from the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts, words things a bit differently. Let's have someone read uh, 6 to 11. Acts chapter 1, 6 to 11. Who can read that for us? The last passage to read for today. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, that's good. Okay, what an amazing sight. And here we have some of the final words that Jesus said to them. It's not for you to know everything. 
Peter asks, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, well, it's not for you to know the timing of all this. But instead, know that you'll receive spirit power, right? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses out in the world. And after he'd said these things, there he goes. A cloud received him. That's different than what we saw in Luke. It's additional information. A cloud received him, and you have these two men, angels it seems, in white clothing, standing there saying, hey, um, wipe the drool from your face there and go. Go do what he said. Go be his witnesses out there on the face of the earth, okay? Uh, while adding, he's going to return in the same way that he left. So there's more detail here that Luke offers. <clears throat> the disciples' concern, the cloud, the angels, absolutely an amazing scene. And the angels gave this promise that the second coming will occur in just the same way. It's how it's phrased there in verse 11. In just the same way, you can just rewind the tape, and it's going to happen. He's going to come down. Aubrey, does rewinding the tape, does that illustration make any sense to you? Uh, okay, all right, all right. Getting closer. Okay, so <clears throat> he's going to return in that same way. He will descend physically, just like he ascended physically. Angels will attend in the same way he will be in glory. All right? An amazing, amazing account. Thoughts or questions on the Acts 1 account of this? Or anything about the ascension? Don't want to limit you. You guys just don't have a lot of questions today. Well, Stephen, Paul, and John all beheld the ascended, glorified Christ. That's pretty cool. Uh, in fact, in Acts 7, where Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, when he uh, was dying in that moment, he looked toward the sky and he said that he could see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's the only place in the New Testament where it says he's standing. All other places say that he's seated. Kind of curious. You can do a little Bible study on that this week and let me know your conclusions, okay? But Paul, in Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at that in the, the sermon today. And John, <clears throat> all beheld the ascended, glorified Christ. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, is what the New Testament says over and over and over again with the one exception. He's finished the work that he came to accomplish. He is the ruling king. Redemption is complete. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. That's your blank at the bottom of the page. Okay? He's now sitting at the right hand of God. He has finished the work. Now, when I say redemption is complete, that obviously doesn't mean that this is all that there is in this life. There's more that Jesus is going to do. There's more ways he's going to express his kingly authority and rule over the face of the earth. Um, he's going to actually be seated on a literal physical throne on the earth, David's throne. That was a promise that God made with an oath, as Peter mentioned in Acts chapter 2. God made an, an oath to David that this would happen. And so there's, this isn't the end of God's program, but he is seated because he has finished the work. Okay? May we remember to include the ascension of Christ when we speak of his work. 
is just as important as his death and resurrection. Now, if you're giving a gospel presentation and you don't mention the ascension of Christ, can someone still be saved? Yes, someone still can be saved. But I want you to think about this, of how impactful it would be if you started purposely including that Jesus ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead. Because that is a fact of history, right? It is important. It was prophesied. The apostles talked about this event. And perhaps, you know, the Lord would use that particular fact of Jesus' work to really encourage somebody and to help someone to come to a moment of initial faith. Well, I've now reached the end of this slide, and we have eight, nine minutes left. So any thoughts or questions about anything we've studied in this lesson? Joe? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, the resurrection is specifically speaking of his coming out of the tomb after death. Okay. Um, you can be resurrected without ascending, because ascending is specifically speaking of his going to heaven. So, uh, for instance, Lazarus was resurrected, but he never ascended. Yes, that's Yes, the dead in Christ will rise first. They will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and they will ascend, and we who are alive and remain will be gathered together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So you can read the end of 1 Corinthians 15, the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about this, and we will ascend on high with Christ. And actually, John 14 is maybe even more explicit on this, the first few verses of John 14, where Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come again and gather you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He says that in John 14, when he receives us to himself, we are going to go to his father's house where there are many dwelling places. And so, yeah, we'll ascend on high with him in a glorified state. Shauna, there are no silly questions, only silly people. Yeah, yeah. Well, 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 let's correct a couple of things here, okay, because I think I, I may understand what you're saying, but I may not, okay? So, first of all, what you have in, um, let's start here, Jesus is teaching in Luke 16. He talks about Lazarus and the rich man. You guys remember this story? I don't think that's a parable. I think that's a true story. He's using real, a real name, Lazarus. I think he's, he's telling a real story. And he says that what happened when Lazarus and the rich man died was that Lazarus, the poor man, went to a place called Abraham's bosom. He, Jesus doesn't use the word heaven there. He uses the, the term Abraham's bosom. And uh, the rich man went to Hades, and he was in torment in flame in the place he went. So Jesus presents this story and says, these two men go to these two places, different places. However, there's some kind of communication, because even though there's a great gulf in between or a chasm in between, they're able to communicate across. And um, I think what Jesus is describing there in that parable is the grave, Sheol. And I think that's where all Old Testament people went. Before Jesus died and, and rose again and ascended on high, I think everybody who had died before that time went to the grave. 
The Old Testament talks about this, both the righteous and the unrighteous go to Sheol, is what it says, the grave. But apparently there were two compartments, two sections, two whatever you want to say, uh, places within Sheol, one being a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom, and another being a place of torment with flame, even Hades or hell. Right? However, what we see in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in Philippians chapter 1, so we'll get to the 2 Corinthians 5 passage just in a couple weeks in the sermons, but Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5, we have Paul stating that to live is Christ and to die is gain, or to die is more Christ. Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In Philippians chapter 1, uh, he says that he desires to depart this earth and to be with Christ, which is far better. So what we have now in our New Testament theology is this reality that when a believer dies, he is with the Lord, not in body. His body goes to the grave, and, and Paul uses that language in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, we're given this tent or this body, and we shed it here when we die, and our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And then when Jesus returns, there's going to be a reunion between that body and our spirit. That body is not shed behind to waste away to never be resurrected. It will be resurrected in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection. And so our spirit is with the Lord instantly when we take our last breath, if we are Christians. I think, and I think that's a change from Old Testament times till now, where we are able to be in the very presence of God because Jesus finished the work. Now, not bodily, because there's a resurrection that will come. Is that, now, is that making sense? Okay. Yeah, good. Well, like I said, we're going to be um, in 2 Corinthians 4 today. We'll be in chapter 5 before too long, and we'll talk about it more then. Okay. Steve, former pastor of our church, Steve Barsoom. Welcome. And share. Yes. Yes. Yes, very good. Um, as that verse, Psalm 68, 18, we read, it says that Jesus led captive a host of captives in his ascension. Who, who are those people? Well, to me, it, yeah, it makes sense. Those who were in Abraham's bosom are now released to be in the presence of God. And Jesus had to finish the work. He had to atone for all sin before that was possible. If we could die and be in the presence of the Lord without the death and resurrection of Christ, then we didn't need the death and resurrection of Christ. But that event now allows us to be in the presence of God. Good stuff. Other thoughts or questions? Huh. Oh, I think that would be really bad. That would be very, very bad. Yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we would. Yeah, we would run up a long list of sins so God could show more grace, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, but as Jesus said about his own return, <clears throat> no one knows the day or the hour. As he tells the disciples there in Acts 1 before he ascends, it's not for you to know the times. And the apostles lived with this sense of urgency, like almost like they had real faith that Jesus could return in the next moment. And if we lived with that kind of faith, our lives would definitely be impacted. And, and when I'm around people like that who have more faith than I do, and I see that in them, it is so inspiring and encouraging to me. And, and I hope we can encourage one another, build one another up in such a way that we live with that in expectancy. Because that affects how you live. If you believe that Jesus could come before you take your next breath, so all of a sudden, scary conversations aren't as scary anymore. Evangelism isn't like a burden anymore. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. That's what he's talking about. Do we have that faith? Well, very good. Thanks for joining me. I think next week we'll do um, a recap a bit of Christology, the study of Christ. And then um, the week after that, weeks that follow that, we will uh, finish off that section before moving into the study of salvation. That's what's next, okay? Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you so much for this study, for your word that is so precious to us. Help us to cling to your word, that by your revelation, we would be revived in our spirits, and that we would be provoked, motivated, sustained to go on living for you. Help us today to be encouraged, to be filled with joy, to be challenged from your word, and to be provoked to good works, even as we see the day approaching. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.